0: I'd like you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Uh, we're going to read through into chapter 12, verse 3, but we're going to spend most of our time just finishing up chapter 11. So let's uh, begin by reading this together. Genesis 11, 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of uh, Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, So in verse 27 of chapter 11, we begin yet another generations of section in the book of Genesis. So again, we've said it a number of times, these, this phrase, these are the generations of, marks out new um, sections of this book. It's built around these sections. And uh, last week, we looked at two of those sections, so sometimes they can be relatively short, Uh, But this one is a really long one. It goes all the way into chapter 25 and verse 11. So the heading, when it says, these are the generations of Terah, of course, Terah, as we just read, is Abraham's father. And I'll just say now, uh, the text here is saying Abram, and eventually God's going to rename him Abraham. I'm probably just going to say both names uh, and just, I trust you understand uh, that. But uh, this begins here with the generations of Terah, it says. And again, as we've noted in the past, uh, the, the, the name that is stated in that heading, these are the generations of, is not necessarily the main human character in the section to come, but is often the launch point from which that section then begins. And so here in this section that goes into chapter 25, the main human character is, of course, Abram who will be renamed Abraham. And this section will continue right up until his death in chapter 25. But there are other descendants of this man, Terah, that also factor into this section, including Lot. We just read about Lot, and we will see him enter in more. Uh, Also, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, who's a great-grandchild of Terah, but through Nahor, not through Abram. Uh, and again, we will see even later, uh, Rebekah's brother Laban and his offspring, uh, who we become wives, multiple wives, we'll get there eventually, of uh, Jacob. So in these verses, at the end of chapter 20, or chapter 11, sorry, we have what might appear to be nothing more than an introduction to this new section an introduction in which we find names that are given, uh, some of the characters that are going to show up in this next section, of course, the all-important family lineage of Abram that we've looked at uh, even last week. But I also would suggest to you that there is in these verses a subtle but moving account of God's grace and His power to save, an understated narrative about God's grace to a family of idol worshipers. Uh, Certainly, we might see how that's the case with someone like Abram. We just read in chapter 12 how God appears to Abram and tells him to go, and he's going to bless him, and so on. We might understand how God shows grace and kindness to Lot, but I believe it's also a grace that was shown toward Terah, toward Abram's father as well. And while it's not a major emphasis of the overall story here in this section of Genesis, it is worthy of our consideration because, among other things, it reminds us of God's care and his grace toward many who would not be much in the eyes of the world, who we might also easily write off as just another idolater. Terah, this man, seems... Almost incidental in the big picture of the Bible, even in the big picture of Genesis, even this section that bears his name. He uh, can seem just like he's just a name to know so we can get the right lineage, uh, but little more than that. In fact, we are explicitly told later in Scripture that Terah was, in fact, an idol worshiper. But I don't believe that he was left in that condition. And so I want to get into this and and explain this and show hopefully why this is the case, why I think this is here in this text. There are times when you pick up the Bible and you read maybe an old story and you kind of have an expectation of what you're going to find. And then as you study a little further, you can find yourself surprised by what's there. And this week, to be honest, I thought these verses in chapter 11 would be kind of part of a quick Uh, introduction, say a few things, and then the meat of the sermon would be the first three verses of chapter 12. Um, But I was surprised even by what we find here at the end of chapter 11, and even moved by God's kindness to this man, Terah. But it's not just about this one man. It's about what this tells us about God's kindness to sinners all around the world, to the millions of lowly men and women throughout history. Men and women whose names we do not know, who've been completely and entirely forgotten. They were maybe even forgotten in their own day, let alone in our day now, but who nevertheless were recipients of God's grace, known eternally to God. And we could slip right by all of this in this text, and I think often we do, and miss it. And so I hope... As we go through this, you will be encouraged by it. Encouraged that God is not merely concerned with important people, so called, in this world. Encouraged to serve the Lord, even if your prospects of being ever well known and making a name for yourself is low. That you'd be encouraged to rejoice in God's grace toward you if indeed you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you would hold out hope for those who would seem hopelessly lost today. Uh, so let's jump in. And the first point of our outline is just a family of idolaters. A family of idolaters. This is what we see here in verses 27 to 30. Uh, in this first paragraph, we are given a number of Terah's offspring. Uh, again, as I've said, several of whom will factor into this section of Genesis in different ways. And it may not seem obvious that they are a family of idol worshipers. Uh, I think there are hints of it here in this paragraph, uh, but Scripture elsewhere makes it very crystal clear that this is who they were, and this is what they were. So in Joshua chapter 24, uh, Joshua there is leading the people of Israel. They've come into the promised land, and they, uh, he, he leads them in this covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem, and the Lord addresses his people through... Joshua, And in Joshua 24, 2, it says this. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. They served other gods. The Lord, thus says the Lord, These men served other gods. They were idolaters. Very plainly, God himself tells us this through Joshua. And so we can conclude with every bit of confidence that in Genesis chapter 11, as we're being told of this family, we are indeed being told of a family of, of those who worshipped false gods in this land in which they lived. And so let's, let's look here again, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. So we are told here of the three sons of Terah, and we're told where they were from, where they lived, namely in Ur of the Chaldeans. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But we're told that one of the sons here, Haran, died in that land with his father. And then we're told about these other two sons and their marriages. So, verse 29 again and Abram and Nahor, these are the surviving sons of Terah, they took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, something we'll just note in brief here is that Nahor's wife was his brother's daughter, his niece. We will find out later in Genesis that Sarai is actually Abram's uh, half sister. See that later. So you still have, early at this point in Genesis, you still have a, uh, a degree of consanguinity or, or of marrying closer relatives that will later be outlawed in the Mosaic covenant. Uh, But we see it occurring here, and and we might come back to that a little bit later, another time, as we'll have other opportunities. We'll see this later, again, as we we find out more about Abram and Sarai. But Nahor and Milcah here, they're more or less left off in the story as it advances from this point forward. Uh, Their names will appear later. They'll reappear in chapter 24. They are the grandparents, as I said earlier, of Rebekah, who will, of course, become Isaac's wife, and then of her brother Laban as well, again, whose daughters will marry Jacob. So, so their offspring will reintegrate with the chosen line of, of Abram through marriage. But in verse 30, so for the most part Nahor and Milcah, they're kind of left aside for now, um, and, and, the, and, the, and the story will zoom in on Abram as we go. But We're told in verse 30 that his wife, it says, now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Now, again, this is going to be significant in the chapters ahead. As we've been saying, the book of Genesis is all about narrowing in on a particular family line, looking for that fulfillment of the promise of a particular offspring who would come. And so if this is narrowing in on family and a particular offspring, and you have this woman who is barren, well, that's a rather important matter. That's a significant problem, an obstacle, obviously. And that we'll see more of in weeks ahead. Again, we're not told a lot about them here, but we are told about their homeland, Ur of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, they'll become prominent later on in history, and particularly we'll see in the scriptures as well. They were a tribe of people who under a man named Nabopolassar and then his son, Nebuchadnezzar, These people would found the Neo-Babylonian Empire. They'd be the main tribe making up this empire. And so, as we see elsewhere later in Scripture, the Chaldeans, that phrase becomes synonymous with the Babylonians. But at this point, that is all still in the future. Nevertheless, we're told here that was Abraham's ancestral land. That's where he was from. The city of Ur itself, in the region of Babylonia, it was southeast of the city of Babylon, or Babel, which we looked at last week. Uh, So it was down closer to the Persian Gulf, and and if you have a, a, I would imagine most of your Bibles would have a map in the back that would actually show you better where that location is, if the geography is funny to you. Uh, But the Chaldeans would become very well-known idolaters. Uh, Worshippers of false gods. And while, again, this is very clear later, this, their astrology, their divination, and so on, what the Lord tells us in Joshua 24 2 reveals that they were already this way in Terah's day. This family was a family of idolaters. They were residents very much at home in Ur with the other Chaldeans worshiping false gods. And so it would seem then that there was not an unbroken line of faithfulness to the Lord between Shem and Abram. Certainly, by at least the time of Terah, Terah and his family were not worshiping the Lord. They were idolaters. This doesn't mean that there was nobody on the earth who was worshiping God. Uh, We will see, for example, later in Genesis, a man by the name of Melchizedek, who is a priest of God Most High. He will meet Abram and bless Abraham. It will reveal that there were some who were worshiping God. But Terah and his family are not presented to us here as those who were men of faith initially. If you remember when we first are told of Noah in the Bible... We are told that he was an upright man. We're told that he found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. But we are not told of of a history of Noah worshiping false gods or anything like that. We're just told when we meet him he was already an upright man. He had found favor in the eyes of the Lord and he was serving the Lord. But Terah and Abram, they are not presented to us in Scripture this way initially. They were in Ur and they were worshipping false gods. The implication seems to be that from the time of Babel until this time at the end of chapter 27 that there would have been very little true worship of the Lord such that even the line of Shem has become corrupted here. And idolaters. Idolatry is something of a broad category. Uh, on Wednesday, if you were here, we looked briefly at Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. Our study took us there in which Israel was warned, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then in Ezekiel 14, likewise, the Lord warns those in Israel who would take his idol into his heart. Idolatry is first and foremost a matter of the heart. There is a deception that occurs before ever a man bows to a false god. And the false god could have all kinds of different forms. It could be bowing to a physical idol. It could be reverencing a, a false god in a false religion. It could be bowing to the god of mammon that Jesus speaks of. That is of money and possessions. Creating a god in our own image. can have any. And all kinds of forms to it. It can be worshipping one's own self, ultimately. Through the pursuit of pleasure, self-indulgence, and again, many other pursuits. Paul speaks of it in Romans as worshipping the creature... Instead of the creator. And this is what all of these things have in common. Worshipping some aspect of creation which is not the true God who is the creator. Who is separate from creation itself. Humanity in our fallen state is very good at creating idols to worship. When we are not bowing to external ones, we are busy slaving away to the idols that we've enthroned on our hearts. The idols in our own day are varied, but this is not wildly different than other generations. They might have slightly different forms or different names, but really it's nothing new. Some of the idols of our own day are also very testy, very jealous idols, The gods of sex and self, for example, they will not allow for a whole lot of dissent in our own day. If you threaten the sacrament of abortion, which helps to allow sex to be free, so-called, or if you speak of there only being two genders, which are tied to biology, and you just watch the masses who are devoted to these gods come completely untethered and unglued. There's no dissent allowed. But of course, that is in some ways, when we speak of idolatry, something of low hanging fruit in our day, kind of easy for us to see and point out. But idolatry is a very subtle beast. And there are, again, various forms that are harder to spot. Again, the the scriptures speak of the idolatry being a matter of the heart. And so we can take very good things even and turn them into idols the gods of money, pleasure, entertainment, and so on, these might be ones that are harder for us to see and even root out and might even seem, in some cases, somewhat respectable to us. There is much darkness in our day as there has been in in virtually every other day. Men worshiping almost anything and everything except for the true God. And yet, while Terah and his family worshiping idols is obviously not a good thing, I would submit to you that it can be encouraging for us to consider this precisely because it reveals that God can indeed and does indeed save idolaters from our sin and folly. Those who are blind and lost in sin amongst other people, blind and lost in sin, worshiping idols. Now, we know this to be true in our heads that God saves sinners, He saves idolaters, yes, yes. But we can begin to wonder about it or doubt it or lose sight of it in our own hearts as we look out in our own day and we see all kinds of unbelief and all kinds of crazy things and people devoting themselves to all kinds of idols that are not the true God. When there can seem to be no hope for souls, lost and blinded in sin, we have here yet another example of an idol-worshipping family to whom God will reach down to with his mighty arm. James Montgomery Boyce was a, a preacher who, whose commentaries on Genesis I have, I have been reading as we've gone through, and he recounts in there how Luther took courage, Martin Luther, looking at this very time period we are considering now, because it was a very dark period. And yet the light was about to shine upon Abram and the Old Testament church, as he says, was not to be totally stamped out. Even in the midst of darkness, we see God mighty to save. But there is also a warning here for us as well. Uh, One of these sons of Abram Haran, for unknown reasons, died. And it's noted when he died. He died, died before there was ever movement out of Ur toward the promised land. Before it would seem Abram ever got a visit from the Lord. Before there was a chance for this man to hear any good news from Abram. It is a warning about the urgency of life. That there may not be a Tomorrow. That the time to get right with the Lord is indeed today. That the time to take seriously the things of the Lord is now. That the time to stop violating the conscience to engage in sin is now. That the time to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ is today. That today is the day of salvation. And this is true for each of us. And it is true for the world. There is urgency. There is danger upon Presuming about tomorrow that there will be one. And we see that in Haran, who died with his father while they were still in Ur of the Chaldeans, this idolatrous land of their fathers. But let's move on here and see God's kindness to these people as well. Let's read again, verse 31. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, the son of Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled, or they dwelt there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, that last paragraph there of chapter 11, verses 31 and 32, it it might look like all we can really say about it is that Terah, for an unknown reason, it's not explicit, leaves Ur to head towards Canaan. And he takes with him some of his family, Abram and Lot. But then he ends up settling in Haran instead of going to Canaan. Also, we're not told explicitly why that is. And if we try to say much more than that, it might seem like speculation. But what I would suggest to you, and I hope to show you, is that Abram had already at this point received the call from God to go to a land that he would show him, and that Terah and Lot went with him because they likewise believed. And so let's just look at this a little closer and hopefully see this. Uh, First of all, there's a question in chapter 12, verse 1, about whether it should be translated there. We we read, now the Lord said to Abram, there's a question about whether that should be translated as the Lord said to Abram, go, as the ESV says, or the Lord had said to Abram, go. Uh, Both of those are legitimate renderings, and the ESV even has uh, a footnote there to let you know That that's debated. It could go either way. And so what's the difference between those two options? Well, the difference is if it's saying the Lord had said to Abram, then it would be suggesting that he had already said this prior to 12.1. That is prior to the death of Terah. Abram had already received this instruction from the Lord and then that would be an explanation of why it is that Terah and Abram and Lot had left Ur in the first place if that seems like a stretch we are told explicitly elsewhere that Abram had already received the word from the Lord this is the very thing that Stephen tells us. If you remember the book of Acts chapter 7, the martyr Stephen. When he begins his sermon, really, before they, they throw stones at him and kill him. Here's how he begins it in Acts 7 verse 2. Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And God said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. So Stephen tells us, by referring very clearly to, 12, to Genesis 12, 1, that Abram had received that message prior to living in Haran, prior to the death of his father, while he was still in Mesopotamia, while he was still in Ur, that is. That's when God had spoken to him and told him to leave. So it seems very reasonable, then, right to conclude that Terah setting out from Ur with Abram and Lot is prompted by what God had told Abram to go, to leave that land. So it is likewise reasonable to conclude that Terah and Lot also believed and wanted to go. Why else would they just up and leave? This would be a perfect explanation of why it is that they went, but some of the others didn't, like Nahor and his wife. Also, when preparing for this, every single old commentary that I read, which I guess when I say that I mean anything before, I don't know, the last hundred 200 years. uh, They they all, all the ones that I read at least, took this position. They all said the same thing about this. So John Calvin says it. Uh, The Geneva Geneva Bible Notes, a famous English translation, said it. John Trapp, who wrote a commentary in the 1600s, he said it. Matthew Henry, uh, the Baptist Andrew Fuller, and John Gill as well. They all take it this way that Terah was benefiting from the promise made to Abraham and that he went along with him, leaving his idols behind. And so, so here's what Andrew Fuller, for example, writes. He says, taking the whole together. And what he means is when we look at Genesis 11 and into chapter 12, when we consider that in Joshua 24:2 we're told that this family, they were idolaters in the land of Ur. When we consider what Stephen tells us, Uh, that that Abram received the command to go while still living in Ur. When we try to put all this together, here's what Fuller says. It appears that God revealed himself to Abram and called him to depart from that idolatrous and wicked country, Ur, whether any of his relations would go with him or not. That Abram then told his father, Terah, and to all the family and invited them to accompany him that Terah consented, as did also his grandson Lot, that Nahor and his wife Milcah were unwilling to go and did not go at present, that though Terah was not the first mover in this affair, that is, he was not the main actor, or he was not the, the brains behind the plan, he was not the one God appeared to, yet, because he was the head of the family, he is said in verse 31 to have taken Abram and Sarai and Lot and journeyed toward Canaan. So I think that does the best justice to all of these texts as we try to put these pieces together. Uh, in, 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 in a lot of the more modern commentaries as well, at least again, the ones I've read, uh, they seem a little more hesitant to draw these conclusions. But I don't find any of their explanations about why Terah left Ur. I don't find them to make any more sense of what we have in Scripture than this understanding. Now, as for why they would settle in Haran, again, a common understanding is that Terah, being old, fell ill and they were unable to continue their journey. And so they stayed there and eventually he died. And then upon his death, Abram renews his journey. Some argue that maybe there was hesitancy, they got as far as Haran, but there was some maybe doubting or waning of faith in Terah and or Abram that caused them to stop, that's possible of course, but given the reference here to Terah's death there, it seems that old age and illness might be a better explanation. Regardless, I am persuaded that Terah, likely as he's getting on in his age, believed what God had said to his son and set out in faith with his son and benefited from what the Lord had said. Now, this story in Genesis is not going to say much more about Terah. It's going to focus in more on his offspring, particularly Abraham. But I think it's worth, again, considering God's grace to sinners in all of this. Here is Terah, an idol worshiper in a land of idol worshippers. Receiving the word of God by faith as he hears it from his son in his old age, turning from his idols and being part of the lineage of the Messiah. There are a couple of things that I find compelling here about this. The first, again, is just the reminder of God's power to save, no matter how bleak and dark things may seem. Again, the times were dark at the end of Genesis 11. And into it, God reveals his glory, as Stephen puts it, calls out to Abram. And at least some of Abram's family were blessed along with him from the very beginning. And even if you're not completely convinced that this is saying this much about Terah, that he turned out to, to believe, we certainly do see elsewhere in Scripture God's power to save wretched sinners, even at the last minute, like the thief on the cross. I mean, that's, in one sense, the darkest moment that history has ever known. In another sense, it is the greatest, yes, as Jesus dies to save sinners. But here is the Messiah long foretold, being rejected, being nailed to the cross. And in this moment, here is this sinner, this murderer, a man who is being crucified who by his own admission deserves what he's getting. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Christ saying today you will be with me in paradise. We think of course of the apostle Paul, perhaps the quintessential example of this. A vicious persecutor of the church. The least likely you would think to turn and be saved. On his way in fact to try to arrest yet more Christians, literally blinded by the light as the Lord appeared to him on that day. There is hope in any dark day, including our own. And even as we think about the lead up to the Christmas season, and we think about Christ coming to earth, that's another one of those themes we see, a light shining in darkness in the early part of the Gospels. There is hope in any dark day, including our own. The times before the Great Awakening. Think of the Great Awakening, and, or we could go back to the Reformation itself. These times that we might look back to with a certain yearning and think of all those people who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and those men who were preaching the gospel with great power and men and women of, of faith who were rejecting the world and trusting in the Lord and in some cases being martyred. All of those occurred out of times of much darkness where there was little true religion, where there was much formalism, where there was the external form of Christian religion but not the heart of the gospel. And then came the light. God can save sinners. He does save sinners. He's been doing this for a long, long time. The gospel is, we are told, the power of God unto salvation. So I, That's one of the things that, that I find compelling here in thinking of Terah and Abram and Lot. But the second thing I find compelling is related to the relative obscurity of this man, Terah. Now, obviously, he is in the Bible. There's a section of Genesis that gets a name after him. He is in the the lineage of Christ. Obviously, there's an honor in that. It is from his descendants. The Savior comes. But obviously, we could very easily miss that this man even believed in the Lord. That he even had had ever, at any point, possessed faith. It seems that he was very nearly, at least from a human perspective, very nearly passed by altogether. God spoke to his son Abram, not to him. And yet, what a tremendous blessing for this man to believe and then to take Abram and his grandson and to begin that journey toward Canaan. So Terah is something of a forgotten man to many. And it reminds me or makes me think of how many, again, millions throughout history, completely unknown, now forgotten, known to the Lord. Those whom the Lord has called out of sin. And maybe it's the sin of the blackest, most wicked, pagan sort of idolatry. Or maybe it's salvation out of the blinding light of self-righteousness. But how many unknown names, obscure people, purchased by the blood of Christ. These souls who lived and died unknown, but for whom eternity awaits. It's a a remarkable thought, I would say. And when I think of this in light of today, in our own day. Again, this text makes me think of two things. First, that the Lord could do great things in bringing about tremendous revival in our own day at the preaching of his word and as his people call out to him in prayer for such things. And as we as his people take seriously what God calls us to do, to believe what he tells us to believe, to seek to walk before him in holiness Secondly, there's encouragement in this fact that God saves unknown people. People that are unimpressive to the world, forgettable to many. We read earlier, not many of the Corinthians in this church Paul writes to, not many of them were of noble stock. They were not terribly impressive individuals. People whom the world would say, wow, that person, there's something. The person that evangelicals will say, man, if we could just get that guy saved, then everyone would have to believe. And I find all of this hopeful, encouraging to us. God saves sinners, and he delights to use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Again, here's a family at the end of chapter 11. They're they're not living unto the Lord, and so God honors that and decides to choose them. They're worshiping idols. They've descended into this despite being offspring of Shem. Here's a father near the end of his days benefiting from this announcement made to his son. Here's a man barely mentioned in Scripture despite being part of an honored lineage. There's hope in this. Let us labor in our day unto the Lord with much prayer and with hopefulness. We should rightly view ourselves as lowly before God, as nothing before him, deserving of nothing. We should feel our weakness. We know that when we read God's word, we fall short of God's glory. When we read God's law, it exposes our hearts. We are sinful. When we look out into the world, we see evil is rampant and great, and all those who seem to have power seem to be leading the charge into wickedness. But our God is greater yet than these people. He can and does save sinners, those whom the world, again, would find very forgettable or who would mock or despise. People like those of us who live in southern Saskatchewan. God not only saves sinners, but he sanctifies those that he saves and he keeps those that he saves. He does not leave us or forsake us. Let us pray. Let us call out to God. Let us be about the work that the Lord has given us in our homes, in our jobs, everywhere we have opportunity. And let us not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is, we are told, the power of God on the salvation for those who believe. And this is just as much true in our own day as in any other. And let us be content to leave the results in God's hands. Whether churches pop up all over, whether our own numbers would swell, Or whether we would remain as we are, dwindle in time even, whether we would be despised of the world, whether there are no others out there preaching the gospel. Let us be content to be obscure in the eyes of the world. But Let us pray big prayers to the Lord. Submit ourselves to his answers. If you think of Terah, he didn't see great revival in his day that we are told of. Even Abraham, while the recipient of tremendous promises, died with the fulfillment of them yet being far off. Being told even his physical descendants would be enslaved for 400 years. And of course with the eternal heavenly kingdom yet further off. God saves sinners. He does so through the blood of his son Jesus Christ whom he has sent to satisfy God's wrath on behalf of all who would believe in him. Let's take heart with this. And again, be unashamed of this. Put this forth as the hope for mankind. Be bold in it, courageous in it. May God make it so. May we not be those who are without hope. Life is hard. Difficulties come our way. There's no question about it. But we are not those who live without hope. And even as we think of the evil that seems to be growing around us, you have that feeling of helplessness and looking all around. We cry out to the Lord and we point people to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we leave the results with him. It's in his hands. And we rest in that. We labor, we live unto him, and we go to sleep. And we trust him with whatever he does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for where we are so often worried. Worrying in sinful ways. Worrying about what may or may not be. Father, we know we need to be diligent. We want to be wise. We want to see the world for what it is. And that is not always a pleasant thing to look at, to understand. But Father, help us to entrust ourselves to you. Father, that whatever comes, you are good. Father, help us to trust that you are not done with us, that you are sanctifying us. As you say, you complete the work that you begin in those whom you draw to yourself, in those whom you give faith Father, help us to also know that you are building your church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. And Father, even when there is great darkness around us, you still are saving people and calling people to yourself. And Father, if all of our efforts around us to try to stem the tide of the slide into greater and greater immorality and our social and political efforts, if they come to nothing, Father, may we never lose confidence in the truth that you are building your church. May we not lose sight of eternity. Help us to live in light of that truly, Father. So we pray that you would deal with us according to your mercy, continually give us help in our times of need and help us to go forth with heads up. Father, strengthen us through whatever trials and difficulty we face. And Father, many of them are very real and very painful. Father, we ask for your help. And we look to you and we call out to you. We, we don't know what else to do. So we thank you that you are able, that you are faithful, and that you are good. We praise you together in Jesus' name. Amen.